Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Good morning, Fairview. This morning, our text is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm going to uh, read our text. Thank you for remaining standing for the reading of God's word. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man he had compassion he went over to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on olive oil and wine then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him the next day he took out two denarii gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him when I come back I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers the one who showed mercy to him he said then Jesus told him Go and do the same. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever been arguing with someone about something or maybe in in some kind of debate uh, and you said, you're asking the wrong question? Or maybe someone said that to you when you were in a discussion or a debate with someone. Whenever there are two sides and they're, they're trying to, to come to agreement on some contentious issue, you'll occasionally hear somebody say that. You're, you're asking the wrong question. And what they mean by that, whenever someone says that, it, it's, it's different than, than talking about giving the wrong answer. When we talk about asking the wrong question, what we're saying is that the the, the, the framework for the conversation needs to change, needs to be turned upside down, that we need a, a new window of imagination to open up so that we consider this controversy in a different way. You've got to flip the frame. When someone says you're asking the wrong question, what they're saying is we, we need to look at this from, a, from an entirely different angle. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Let's say that there's a small town that has a, a higher number of traffic injuries in the towns around it. And so the local leaders, you know, they want to make sure that the town is safe for people. So they're, you know, they're doing what they can to, uh, um, to, to make sure that if there's a, 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 an injury, you know, or a, a, a traffic uh, situation that takes place or an accident, that, that the ambulance gets there really quickly, you know, and that people in the hospitals are prepped in case that there's an accident. And, uh, you know, and they begin to, to, to take action to, to, to try to make these, these injuries uh, less of a problem, that they can keep people safe. But at some point down the line in the this town, someone begins to say, you know, we're asking the wrong question. 
instead of focusing on our emergency response, we ought to focus on the intersection where most of the accidents are taking place. You know, and then there's an entirely different set of solutions that pops up, right? Because then they start asking questions about, well, what if we installed some mirrors, you know, on the curb right before the intersection? Or what if we lowered the speed limit so that people would, would, would go slower in that, in that place? Or what if we, uh, you know, were to, to, to have a sign that says, hey, you know, uh, and this is an area where people have accidents. See, as soon as someone asks a different question, well, then there's an entirely different set of solutions that begins to, to present themselves. So there are lots of situations in life where we've got to change the question, right? Where, where we need to look at things clearly, but from a different angle. That's the only way that we can have a better conversation. That's the only way to open up that, that new window of imagination, you know, to, to consider a, a new world of possibilities. Jesus did this all the time. All the time. If you read through the Gospels, you watch how he turns upside down the expectations that people in his day would have. And he did this generally in two ways, by telling a story or by asking a question. And in the passage we just read today, he does both of those things. Jesus does this often. So often he'll tell a story. And that's one of the reasons why we're in this series where we're going through some of the most famous of the stories that Jesus told. And so today we're, we're looking at uh, um, a story that whether or not you've gone to church for a long time or whether you're, you're here visiting for some reason or you're, you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I assume that everyone in this room knows what the Good Samaritan is, at least has some familiarity with the story because that, that term, that description, the Good Samaritan, it's just so pervasive now in our culture. I would say that this is probably, if not the most famous story that Jesus told. And we read the passage and we saw how this story came about. An expert in the law asked Jesus how to gain eternal life. And then Jesus summed up the message of the Old Testament in two commands, love God and love your neighbor. But then when the man asks, who is my neighbor? Well, then Jesus changed the question. He flipped the script. He turned expectations upside down by telling the story of a man in distress and an unexpected act of compassion. So let's take a closer look. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna sum up the first part before we get to the story, basically his conversation with the lawyer, I would say it's follow Jesus by loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what we're getting out of this first part. So, and on a regular basis in the gospels, you know this, people wanted to trip up Jesus, right? They wanted to trap him in some kind of inconsistency. And so they would ask him questions, especially at the end of his life, in the last week of his life. Multiple people, you know, uh, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, or the, the, the question about the, the Sadducees and the man who had multiple wives and who is he going to, 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 to be married to in heaven? All throughout the gospels, you see this, 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 this desire to trip up Jesus in some, in some way. And we're looking at one of those occasions here. Verse 25, then an expert in the law stood up to test him. See, it's to test him. Saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is, and, and then Jesus asked him, what is written in the law? See, right there. He, Jesus answers the question by asking another question. Jesus does this regularly, remember? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. 
Now we know there are questions and then there are questions, right? Have you ever been in a classroom where someone asked a question, but the person already knew the answer to the question they were asking? Or they were asking a question as a way of not to discover new knowledge, but to kind of show off the knowledge they've already got. Maybe you've been that person in the classroom before. But you know, like there are questions and then there are questions. And this is, this often happens when people feel the need to, you know, to justify themselves or to put themselves on a pedestal or to show off their status or their intellectual abilities. And something similar is happening in this passage. There's this expert in the law, all right? Remember, he's an expert in the law, right? And he's asking Jesus a question to test him and to see what his answer might be. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question is fine. The question is a common one. It's one that we've seen before. It's one that we'll see again. But I do want to just clarify the meaning of this question because I think for a lot of us, when we see the expert in the law, his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For most people in here, I would say, your mind immediately translates that or interprets that to mean, how do I get to heaven when I die? How do I get to heaven when I die? But in the first century, the question would have had a, a, a different shade of meaning. Basically, when this lawyer, this expert is asking about inheriting eternal life, what he's really asking is something more like this. He's saying, teacher, how can I make sure that I will be part of God's kingdom when the Messiah comes and establishes his reign on earth? That's what he's asking. How can I be part of the age to come, the life that is going to come? When, when God fulfills all of those promises in the Old Testament about renewing his people and freeing his people, him really becoming king, how can I make sure that I get in on that? How can I make sure that I'm on the, on the right side? How can I be part of that inheritance? That's what the question meant in Jesus' day. And so look at how Jesus responded. He said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, hey, you're the expert in the law. You tell me. What do you find there? Remember, Jesus often responds to questions by asking other questions because he's, and he does this because he wants to reveal the heart behind the question. And that's what he did here. And notice how the man responded. Maybe this man had heard Jesus teach before, but we know Jesus had actually summed up the law and the prophets summed up the whole Old Testament in loving God and loving your neighbor. And so the expert in the law gives a Jesus type of answer to this question. It's not bad, right? And Jesus naturally congratulates the expert in the law. The man answered correctly. Jesus, this is how Jesus himself summed up the law. And then Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you'll be part of that inheritance. Now, some of you, when you hear that, you might wonder, wait, is, is Jesus saying that fulfilling the law is the way to earn eternal life? I mean, was he, was he really saying that loving God and loving neighbor is what it takes to be part of his kingdom? I mean, is he saying you have to, to do something to be saved? Now, the answer, which may surprise you, is yes. Yes, that is what Jesus is saying. Complete obedience to the law of God, which remember has now been summed up in perfect devotion and love toward God and to your neighbor, that brings salvation. Jesus is right. If you do that fully, if you fully love God and fully love neighbor perfectly without failing, yes, you will live. Now that's a really high standard, isn't it? 
And suddenly you see how the heart of the man is revealed in the next part of the passage because you may be asking the same question. Wait a minute. Who can fully love God and fully love neighbor as they ought to? If complete obedience to the law is required to inherit eternal life, then how can this expert in the law make sure that he's okay? And I mean, you may be asking the question about yourself. Who among us, if we're honest, would say that we have succeeded and that we do succeed at loving God fully and at all times in the way we are commanded to? Who is without fault in doing this? Now, we're going to see how the man responded to Jesus' command in just a moment. But first, I just want us to pause and consider this unbending, unyielding vision of what Jesus has described here. Basically, he's saying, look, life in God's kingdom is a life of love toward God and other people. It would be impossible to inherit God's new world if the person has no love for God and for other people. So, and I think we got to hear that this point, the promise of heaven when we die and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time is that we will be forever with God and with his people. And listen, life today is a preparation for that eternal life in the future. The love we share in the future must invade the present and fill us with compassion. Do this and you will live, Jesus said. Or do this and you are really living. It's a simple question, simple answer. You want to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. But notice, that's the law. That answer implies full devotion. It's a perfection of love for God and neighbor that none of us has, if we're honest. None of us have been able to fulfill. So it's not surprising then that the expert in the law, when brought face to face with the perfection of God's law, suddenly feels the sting of not measuring up. He's feeling the sting of the law's condemnation. He's feeling exposed as the law shows his inadequacy his failure to love God and love neighbor as he ought. And so then he responds with another question. Look at verse 29. It says, but, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's the question. Who is my neighbor? Notice the expert's question was not innocent. Do you see that? He realized the immensity of Jesus' words. He's felt the weight of this responsibility. I've got to love God and love my neighbor at all times and in all places. And now, wanting to justify himself, he asked a question that is designed to limit his love. That's what he's doing. He's saying, okay, well then tell me who it is I need to love and I'll make sure I love that person. See, the intent is to to limit the circle to this manageable group. Tell me who my neighbors are, and I'll make sure I love them. And Jesus responds to that question by telling one of his most famous stories, which I'll sum up the story just this way. I'll say, you love your neighbor by showing compassion to anyone in need. I mean, that's really the, the point 
of Jesus's parable, to love your neighbor by, by showing compassion. Look at verses 30 through 35. Jesus took up the question. So this is Jesus's answer. He doesn't answer it directly. He took up the question and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So there's the story. And it's a story filled with drama from the beginning. First, you have a man. He's presumably, he's Jewish, okay? He's on this dangerous road. There were lots of brigands and robbers and whatnot on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he falls into the hands of robbers. And next, you have the introduction of two of the most well-respected, well-thought-of people you could imagine, a priest and a Levite. I mean, these are like the, the, the best of the best. These are religious leaders, Jewish leaders. And both of them would have been expected to do something to help the man in, the, in distress, but both of them just pass on by. They, 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 they left the wounded and dying man alone. And then shockingly, a Samaritan man stops to help the wounded Jew. Now, you got to understand, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, like, we, we are so used to this story, we think, oh, Samaritan, good. That is not the way Jesus' original listeners would have heard this story. As soon as they hear Samaritan, like, the Jewish people in Jesus' day despised the Samaritans. They had all sorts of, there's a lot of history back with this. I mean, for ethnic reasons, for cultural reasons, for religious reasons, I mean... For the Samaritan to become the hero of the story. For the Samaritan to be the one to cross ethnic and cultural boundaries. I mean, Jesus tells the story as a, it's like scandalous. Scandalous. And imagine if we were to retell the story today, just to kind of get a little bit of the oomph of the story. Just imagine if we were, if we were retelling the story today, and it's this wounded Christian man who is being passed by by two leaders in the church. And then the, the person who stops and helps him is a Muslim refugee. Okay, or imagine like in the deep south during the Jim Crow era, it's a wounded white man on the side of the road and the only person who stops to help is a black man. Okay, so if you're, you see the, the ethnic, the cultural, the religious, all of this is here. The parable is intended to shock and to scandalize. And Jesus' point in doing that is he wants to open up new vistas of imagination, right? And it raises a number of questions. Okay, why do religious people in this parable not show compassion when they're walking by and there's someone wounded right there? Or, or what should compassion look like? Like what would be my responsibility if God puts someone in my path that's wounded or dying? Uh, how should I consider the cost of compassion? 
right? Like what, how, how should I, what responsibility do I have for the welfare of another person? See, this is what a parable does. This is what a story does. It begins to ask, it begins to raise questions like this. And we should also ask ourselves, why did Jesus decide to tell a story instead of just say, well, to be a neighbor, you got to show compassion. Because there's something powerful. There's something open-ended in Jesus delivering this truth in the form of a story. story. I mean, the reason Jesus tells the story is because he wants to stir up something in your heart. He doesn't just want to tell you what to do. He wants to show you a new way of living. And the truth that Jesus showed in this story is that his vision of compassion, his vision of neighbor love, crosses boundaries, overcomes obstacles. Jesus intends to shock you with the question, not who is my neighbor, but am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? That's the question. And he turns the table in a way that that makes the ending a surprise. Listen, this is the truth of it for us in the church. And if if we don't get this, we're missing the pinch of the parable, okay? The person you'd be most likely to overlook or to think is not your neighbor, the person God puts in your path that you don't think you have responsibility for. That's the one you should be a neighbor to. It's the people from a different social class. They may not look like you. They may not talk like you. They may not vote like you. They may not have your same background. They may not have your values. They may not share your religious beliefs. It's the person who you'd be tempted to look down on, to silently judge, to look past because, well, they don't matter as much as the people who matter to you. That's what leads us then to where I wanted to to camp out for the rest of our, our time is the fundamental truth of this passage is that we are to receive and spread the compassion of Jesus. And I want to show you how this works because first, We are to receive the compassion of Jesus and then we spread the compassion of Jesus. That's the logic of the Bible. That's the logic of the New Testament. That's the logic of the law and the gospel is that we need compassion for our own failures before we can show compassion to others. We need God's grace toward us. And we've got to come to a place where we're no longer trying to justify ourselves because we've been justified by our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. His grace is what then transforms us. John Stott describes our task. He said, if God's word became visible, our words must too. We cannot announce God's love with credibility unless we also exhibit in action. So I just want to paint a picture for you. What happens when you withhold compassion from other people? If you call yourself a Christian and you don't have a heart of compassion, it's like having a blocked artery. It's like having a blocked artery. It's like it's demonstrating that you're not experiencing or haven't experienced the compassion of God. When your heart is closed to your fellow human being, when God puts someone in your path, And you look away in their time of need or you decide to pass by on the other side of the road. I don't care what race they are, what religion they are, no matter if they never go to church or if every week they go to the mosque, no matter if they say they're gay or straight, whether they're well off or or they're poor, whether they're moral or immoral, righteous or unrighteous, whatever it might be, to look away 
from a fellow human being that God puts in your path who needs is to say something about whether or not you've received the compassion of God. God's compassion to us is scandalous. And if we're going to be like Christ, having his compassion spread to others, our compassion ought to be scandalous as well. Grace spreads. So get this. After telling the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asked a question of his own. And I want you to notice how it differs from the question that the expert in the law asked. So he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So do you see how Jesus changed the question? The expert in the law asked, who is my neighbor? Who do I need to see as my neighbor? Jesus's question is different. His focus is on who you can be a neighbor to. So instead of limiting the number of neighbors that you might have, he grows the number, magnifies the, the, he widens the circle. Listen, we cannot shrink the number. We cannot shrink the circle. We got to listen to Jesus. He wants this this place, this, this compassion to come out of us where he says, who was the neighbor here? Now, it's funny, but the expert in the law, did you see how he answers the question? Do you have a priest, you have a Levite, and you have a Samaritan, right? And when Jesus said, who proved to be the neighbor? Is it the priest? No. Is it the Levite? No. It's the Samaritan, but the man doesn't say the Samaritan. It's almost like he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan is the hero of the story. He so despises the Samaritan, he doesn't want to, it's, all, it's like he catches in his throat, you know, and he's like, it's the one who showed compassion. Like, I don't even want to say Samaritan. It's the one who, who, who showed compassion. He, doesn't, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan is the hero. And then Jesus basically says, you go and do the same. In other words, be like that Samaritan. That's what Jesus says. Mercy and compassion. Listen, this is not about fulfilling a quota of compassionate work for a few neighbors. It's not about checking off your charitable giving. What Jesus is talking about is being the kind of person who shows mercy to those in need. Jesus is telling a story here because he wants your heart. It's heartfelt transformation. It's not just a to-do list that you can check off to say, okay, I've done it. I've loved God. I've loved my neighbor. I fulfill the law. No, that's not what Jesus is after. He's after your heart. And he wants you to be able to see yourself in this parable. Now, in the centuries following uh, the, the, the telling of this parable, there, were, there have been a lot of ancient theologians and a lot of church fathers and others who have interpreted this parable in various ways, sometimes kind of removing it from the context that Jesus first told it in. And there was a, there was a time when... Uh, all of the elements of the parable would get allegorized. You know, like you turn it into an allegory so that everything represents something else. You know, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho becomes spiritualized. You know, it's on this road uh, uh, to, from earth to heaven or in some way, or that the man is, is beaten and he's, he's half alive, half dead. So he's basically spiritually half dead, you know, robbers and whatnot. It might be Satan or demons or whatnot have, 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 have pummeled him on the side of the road. And, and the priest and the Levite, well, that's the law and the prophets. They can't save us, right? So we, you know, and then, and then everything has a, a meaning. 
thing, the, the hotel, maybe that's the church. You know, we bring him into the church. What, what about the, the two coins? Well, that could be the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? Like, so basically everything in the parable gets like this allegorized representation or meaning. Uh, I heard one, someone joke one time, well, well, what does the donkey represent? And they were like, the donkey represents the, the, uh, the, the theologian that came up with all of these crazy interpretations, right? But basically, everything has a, has a spiritual, like, heavenly meaning for it. An allegorical. And there's ways that uh, you can kind of go overboard on allegory, right? Like an excessive interpretation of everything that, that takes it away from the way that Jesus' original hearers would have heard this. So let me just say, I think we're on shaky ground when we try to interpret the parable of Jesus or the parable of the Good Samaritan in this way. Um, Jesus is telling a story. They're responding to the expert in the law's question. He's not providing a mysterious allegory about our spiritual life. But still, I want to be clear about something. I don't think Luke would have ruled out the possibility that this story does hint at Jesus being the one who comes and at great cost to himself shows us compassion. There is a sense in which Jesus is the Good Samaritan the one who takes charge of our welfare, the one who shows us compassion when we are helpless. And surely that's one of the lessons that the expert in the law needed to learn, right? I mean, the expert thought, if I can just whittle down the law to two main commandments, and if I can limit the circle of neighbors, well, then I might be able to justify myself. And Jesus told a story that smashed all of those assumptions, just completely smashed it. And here's what we learn instead. We are to trust in the compassion and mercy of God that we need for salvation. And only then are we able to go and do the same, to show compassion and mercy for others. Before you can become a good Samaritan, you need the salvation of the great Samaritan. And the story ends with application. Go and do likewise. Listen, I, I don't want to come to the end of the parable without letting the weight of Jesus' instruction just weigh on us. We have received the compassion of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place. And now we are commissioned to love our neighbors and to show mercy to those in need. And this is why Christians have always been on the front lines of mercy ministry. This is why everywhere Christians go, suddenly a hospital suddenly arises. And then there's a, oh, there's a school. And then there's all, I mean, this has been the history of Christianity from the beginning. Because these are not just activities we check off on our to-do list. Generosity toward the needy is not just something we do. Generous is something we are called to be. That's the challenge of this parable. Not to find neighbors to love, but to be neighbors who love. To show the world the compassion that we've received from God. Augustine wrote this. I love this quote. He says, he shows mercy to us because of his own goodness. While we show mercy to one another because of God's goodness. He has compassion on us so that we may enjoy him completely. While we have compassion on another so that we may completely enjoy him. I love the parables of Jesus. Stories, they help us ask questions. They open our imagination. They change the frame. They change the questions so that we see things differently. And so I just want us to ponder a few questions personally this morning. How can we 
as a church. Be the kind of place where we show the scandalous pursuing love of God for all humanity. How how can we reach across ethnic and cultural boundaries to show that God shows mercy and compassion to anyone in need? How can we make sure that our attempts at loving our neighbor, they don't just become ways of us trying to justify ourselves or feel good about ourselves or show off our righteousness? How can we move from doing works of compassion and mercy to being compassionate people, merciful people who just naturally overflow? How can we ensure that we aren't looking for excuses to pass by on the other side when God puts people in need right there in our path? I don't have all the answers to those questions and the parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't give us the answer to all these questions, but that's Jesus' intent. He told this story to fire up our hearts and minds, to change our questions, to help us begin thinking and living as people who are loved by God and who are now called to love others. So this morning, the invitation is twofold. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to examine your heart. I just want you to examine your heart and to say, am I... Am I more like the man asking questions meant to justify himself than I think I am? Look in your heart. Ask God to reveal, are there ways that you have sought to narrow and limit the circle of compassion that you show rather than widen it? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think you first got to see yourself like the man who's in need. Only the greatest need you have is spiritual. It's not financial. It's not material. It's not emotional. You need a rescuer, a rescuer. And I'm here to tell you, there is a savior this morning who is present among us, who will change and heal you if you just come to him in humility this morning. So the invitation is to you this morning to come to the Good Samaritan, Jesus, the one who saves. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.